Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For news about In Our Time and for recommendations about our archive, please follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the artist and poet William Blake published Songs of Innocence in 1789, the year of the French Revolution. He was 32. Five years later, he added Songs of Experience and from that point produced them together in the volume we have today. Together, the songs entertain themes such as childhood, education, free will, free love and the role of established religion, all in lines of apparent simplicity. And we know them now for some of the best-loved poems in the English language, such as Tiger, Tiger, The Sick Rose and London. In Blake's lifetime, though, these poems were largely unknown, partly as he made only 50 copies, each coloured painstakingly by hand and circulated by friends like Coleridge and Wordsworth. At his death in 1827, Blake was known for his art, not for his poetry. With me to discuss William Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience are Sir Jonathan Bate, Provost of Worcester College, University of Oxford, Sarah Haggerty, Lecturer at the Faculty of English and Fellow of Queen's College, Cambridge, and John Mee, Professor of 18th Century Studies at the University of York. Jonathan Bate, what was William Blake's early life like? Well, um, it's very important to remember that Blake came from a rather different um, background from the other famous romantics, Wordsworth and Coleridge. Uh, He didn't go to university, so he's a Londoner through and through. Born in Soho, the son of a hosier, a a small businessman, a shopkeeper, um, lives in London all his life, apart from a a short period down in Sussex. Leaves school at the age of 10. Which um, school did he go to? Uh, he, he just went to, to a, a local school, not one of the big public Down schools. Down the street in Soho. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then uh, at the age of 10, his, his parents saw that he had a real talent for art. Um, and so um, he went to a drawing school in the Strand. And then when he was 14... So four years at a drawing school. Four years at a drawing school. Then at the age of 14, apprenticed to an engraver and printmaker. Of course, an apprenticeship is seven years of technical training. Um, So he gets to the age of 21, um, and he then uh, gets a job uh, as an engraver. So um, he's, he's very much in the art world, but at the same time, he is writing poetry. He's uh, in the art world as an artisan, though, isn't he? As an artisan, yeah. I mean, he, he becomes a member of the Royal Academy, but only as an engraver, which is a kind of second-class citizen there. Um, starts, nevertheless, to, 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 to read voraciously. Now, I'd, li- I'd just like to go back to the childhood. Do we know much more about the childhood? It's, a, it's an unusual childhood in, in for the poets at the time. Leaving school at 10, four years apprentice as a, uh, four years studying drawing, then an apprentice engraver, seven years. Do we know any more than that? Well, Did we, he have friends, brothers, sisters, accidents, incidents, what? Um, interesting. Seem to have been um, siblings who died young. Um, but it's it's quite clear that from an early stage, he's quite a strange child. He's a loner. He goes walking a lot. Allegedly, he starts seeing visions of angels over Peckham Rye at the age of eight. Um, when he's training, when he's being apprenticed as a teenager, uh, his master, a man called Bazir, takes him into Westminster Abbey uh, to, to sort of copy um, stained glass windows, statues and so on. And some of the Westminster schoolboys are there and they, they, they start teasing him and uh, Blake loses his temper. He, 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 he was obviously... What um, did they tease him about, do we know? Well, one suspects the fact that uh, he, you know, he's, he, he's, he didn't speak 
in, in, in a posh voice. He wasn't educated, um, and you know he's he, he's there with with his master working at that at that young age. Yes, the, um you began by saying it was not like. Let's take them Wordsworth and Coleridge as they're best known. Can you just, in two or three strokes, tell us the big differences? Well, uh, the big differences, I mean, are to do with a, with, with a university education. Uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, of course, both went to to Cambridge, um, but they're, I think they're also to do with um, the way that one relates to. Um, the, the poetry and the culture of the past. Um, because, of course, Wordsworth and Coleridge, um, uh, having been educated all the way through, would have been educated in the classics. Um, Blake was very against uh, the classics, very against uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the reading of Virgil, the study of Latin and so on. And very importantly, his family are dissenters. So they're lower middle class, they're not part of the established church, and the Bible is absolutely crucial to them. And all of Blake's writings are infused with the language of the Bible. Religious dissent very much bound up with radical politics at the time as well. And that an enormously fruitful, vigorous, radical dissenting implant into English society and English letters and English thought at that time. Sarah Haggerty, what was Blake's reputation as an artist in London society when he got going? Well, Blake's work as an artist took mostly the form of reproductive engravings from about 1779 to 1799. And by reproductive engravings, I mean work for a commercial publisher that would often be designed or invented by one artist and then executed or engraved by another. So it was a division of labour. Um, and often engravers, manual engravers like Blake, were seen just as mere copyists who didn't have any creativity or inventiveness. Um, and add to that the fact that Blake's style was quite unfashionable. His lines were sometimes crudely cut, but often kind of violently and determinately struck in a way that wasn't as fashionable at the time and he also stuck to a very linear style of engraving when um, often small points or cross hatching and tones of light and shade were a lot more common. Can you tell us a bit more for those of, for those of us who don't know much or let's start again know nothing about engraving. Uh, can you tell us a bit more what you would actually do in this process because Jonathan's pointed out it's a seven year apprenticeship mm. taken very seriously. What did you do? What you'd be doing, you would be doing a lot of engraving from models. So that would involve looking at paintings um, and sometimes also um, lumps of the body, a human foot, for example, some statuary. And you'd be copying down what you could see. What would you copy on? Um, so when you're engraving, you're engraving onto metal. Um, you're engraving onto a copper plate. And that's something that Blake was to do with his poetry, as we'll come to, but was also doing in his commercial work. So, you're, so you would often be cutting down in what's known as intaglio into the surface of the metal. And the, the hollow would then be filled with ink and then the paper pressed down in the ink transferred onto the paper. So you go to, say, Westminster Abbey, look at some of those statues, make drawings of them? Oh, oh, well, this actually opens up quite a thorny issue. So he's, he's sketching in pencil and he does continue to sketch and even draft some poems in pencil. But what we'll see when we come to talk about poems like songs is that we come to think of Blake composing directly onto the copper plate. So we're not just looking at a medium of, of, of reproduction anymore. We're actually looking at 
composition, creativity directly onto the copper plate. Well, we can't wait for this, how he, how he made his book, so let's do it now. How did he make his own books? When you look at them, the, the works, I'm looking at the cover from Songs of Innocence and of Experience, uh, um, showing the two contrary states of the human soul, and it's, it's, a, it's as much a painting, drawing, as it is a declaration of the intent for what's inside the book. Um, so how did he do that? Okay, so because he insisted that the two were together, which is why he only managed to do about twenty-five or fifty of these all together, didn't he? Yeah. So one of the striking things that Blake does is he produces texts and images in the same way. Um, so when you look at the book, you can see these very highly coloured plates, and the writing's calligraphic; it's handwriting, and you can often see illustrations on each of the pages and wonderful borders, creeping vines, tendrils, tiny figures, children playing games. He makes them then. Usually at the time, um, printing type and printing image was done by two separate processes. Blake treats words like images. So he took a copper plate, he wrote backwards in mirror writing using an acid-resistant varnish, and then he would wash the surface of the copper plate with acid, which melts the surface down. And then Blake, who incidentally is working with his wife Catherine throughout this printing process, daubs the raised surfaces with ink, runs it through his rolling press with a sheet of dampened paper on top, transfers the image later after it had dried he'd add watercolor washes and so forth sometimes gold leaf so long and complicated and painstaking by hand painting yeah. process yes john me what can we do we know what was preoccupying blake, blake in the 1780s when he was get, getting cracking on this yes i think early in the 1780s he's trying to establish a place for himself in the engraving world hoping, I think, almost to become a creative artist as well, but that wasn't going particularly well. He's establishing himself. He works mainly, at the end of his career, engraving 100 plates for a publisher called Joseph Johnson. It was a Unitarian, a friend to radical and progressive opinion. Like Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Thomas Paine. He was kind of the main mentor of Mary Wollstonecraft. Blake does end up engraving one of Mary Wollstonecraft's books for children. Johnson was an important children's publisher, and Blake's clearly interested in education and a kind of new wave of thinking about education that goes back at least to Rousseau but is also people like Anna Letitia Barbold who's a Unitarian educational writer who are interested in um, children's innate capacities especially for play and pushing the boundaries of constraint and what they would see as, as a very conservative education based on rote book learning. In a sense going quite against the idea, the Christian idea of original sin. Very, very much so, yeah. That, that he sees play as something... Original innocence takes its place. Yes, it's true. Although um, he does see um, innocence as a developing state that can learn identity through play, through interacting with others. It's not that you're born with a pure sense of who you are. It's actually in a world that was free from negative constraints, we will grow into who we were by our interaction with others, by being open, if you like, to the other, although that sounds a very trendily modern phrase, but that's a, a theme that recurs through the Songs of Innocence and Experience. There are even poems about naming, where naming seems to be about an interaction between the child and the mother. Where is he getting these ideas from? Is he getting them from Johnson and that radical circle? Is, is, he, is um, trickling through, percolating through from Rousseau? What's going on? He's definitely, I think, read Rousseau. It's that dissenting tradition that Jonathan The noble about. savage and the innocent child. Yes, yes, exactly. But that dissenting tradition is increasingly kind of liberalising, getting away from its own kind of Puritan background and, and um, 
kind of developing ideas that we would think of as, as liberal, a word that starts to echo around culture at this period. He's very much enthusiastic for the American Revolution. He probably has a sense, uh, he doesn't know the, the French Revolution is going to happen, but he probably has a sense that change is going to come, that the world is improving for the better. Um, whether, that, whether that hope survives the 1790s is another matter. There's another aspect of his character, which you can't omit, uh, which we have from his wife, uh, Catherine Boucher, seems a remarkable woman indeed, helping him, and he taught her to read and write, and he taught her to help him with engraving. But She said, I have very little of Mr. Blake's company. He is always in paradise. Now, what does she mean by that? I think part of what she means is actually not perhaps the obvious point about thinking about angels but actually in the paradise of creativity we, we talked about the way that the creative process of Blake was painstaking another way of thinking about that it was that it would be absolutely absorbing um, the the process of thinking about what you're going to do perhaps turning to the copper and the paper without absolutely knowing what you're going to do experimenting with form thinking about developing colour processes I think he probably was absorbed in a kind of paradise of his work but there wasn't another sort of paradise. I mean, he used to go set off on a walk and go for 40 miles. He, he, he used to set himself up for a week and paint. He, as you told us, Jonathan, or Sarah, one of you told us, <laughs> when he was eight, he saw um, angels at Peckham Rathers. That's going on, isn't it, as well? I think it's true, yeah. But I, don't, I think the thing to say about Blake, it's an idea of paradise that's not completely otherworldly. It's very much to do, I think, I mean, jo Jonathan mentioned quite rightly, he was born and bred Londoner. Four years only outside the city, really. And he didn't like it much. He didn't like it. <laughs> Sussex by the Sea was not a holiday for, for Blake. It? it was... A, can, one second, uh, uh, Jonathan. Just fill us in. He started reading very early, big reader, autodidact, and so on. Did, had he, before we come to songs experience, what had he written before that? He'd written... He, he was very... The 1780s are a decade when the vogue for untutored genius hits among the polite classes. And for while in the very early 1780s he seems to be taken up by a group associated with a clergyman uh, um, the Reverend Matthews and his wife Harriet and seems to be entertained there as a sort of kind of untutored genius he would sing um, he would entertain their circle with his poetry and they helped him privately print a book called Poetical Sketches which is the only thing that was uh, printed in a traditional form during his lifetime. Okay, Jonathan, Jonathan Bate in 1789 Blake produced songs of innocence. What kind of innocence is he talking about? Well, it it is the essential innocence of childhood. I mean, there's there's a, there's a what is that? Well, there's a tradition of writing poetry for children, uh, uh, often of a didactic form. Uh, Isaac Watts is telling them uh, to be good. Uh, telling them to be good, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, songs of innocence. Um, the great majority of the poems uh, just have children in them. They have titles like Infant Joy, or there's one called The Echoing Green about children playing on the green. Such such were the joys. Exactly, um, but. Uh, what he tends to avoid is that didactic idea that the, the purpose of the song for a child being to teach them to be good. Um, but uh, innocence associated with childhood, also associated with green spaces. The, um, just going back to that idea of um, the importance for Blake of imagination and vision, there's a, there's a wonderful passage in one of his letters where he says, the tree that moves some to tears of joy is to others a green thing that stands in the way. 
And I, I think for Blake, there's always two ways of looking at the world. There's a, there's a sort of rational, materialistic way of looking at the world. And then there's an imaginative way of looking at the world, where everything around you shines with some kind of divine light, some kind of divine vision. And he believes that the child has a, a, a particular connectedness to that sense of imagination and divine vision. Sarah Haggerty, five years later, we have Songs of Experience. Uh, I'm obviously going to ask what does it mean by experience, but is, is this, does this come out as a direct uh, follow-up, counter to Songs of Innocence? Is he sitting there and I've done that and now I'm going to do the other side? And is Songs of Experience the other side? If so, can you say that better than I've done? <laughs> I'm sure you can. Uh, on... In 1794, he produces a combined title page to both songs and he calls them The Contrary States of the Human Soul. And there are lots of paired poems between the collections. So very deliberately, experience is a response. Lots is happening between 1789 and 1794. Um, we'll probably talk a bit more about France soon. Blake is also... putting our agenda forward, so... <laughs> <laughs> Blake is composing absolutely loads as well. He's writing many more poems, such as The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in this time. So, so he, he's not kind of deferring any more creativity until experience. When experience comes along, the mood is much darker... Um, there's a general movement from enchantment in innocence to disenchantment in experience. There's an idea of growing up, very simply. We no longer have children but young adults. The title page to experience shows two teenagers really grieving over the death of their parents. Now, Jonathan described how we often have open green spaces in innocence. In experience, sometimes we have the enclosed space of the garden, but we also have city streets, chapels, schoolrooms, confined in indoor spaces and there's also a move from the main narrator and guiding spirit of each collection so songs of innocence opens with a piper um, and songs of experience opens with a bard and there's something about the freedom of creativity and play in innocence that moves to a critique of authority and experience but also quite an authoritative way of putting things. Do we know enough about his life at that time to be able to track how what happened to him or what happened to his thought made that change? <laughs> that's that's a really hard question. Um, I don't think we do know enough. No, I mean, I think that there would be one way of reading in experience quite simplistically as a response to the French Revolution. So you start off with... Yeah, but that, you yourself have made it simplistic. Is there any evidence of that? Uh, oh, there's the French Revolution. I'll write something else. <laughs> well, I think... John? Well, he does write a poem called The French Revolution. That was never, he does write a poem called yeah. The French Revolution that we have only in proofs and with Joseph Johnson's name on it as publisher. So we know he did respond um, positively and there are poems in the notebook which didn't make it into experience. And there are even drafts of um, poems that didn't make experience which have more contemporary reference. So in London, the very famous phrase of mind forged manacles, which seems to speak to that sense of an internalised system. It's not just external politics. It's what seems a very modern idea of an external system having been internalised and been psychologically crippling. But the, that original line was German forged manacles. And it's worth pointing out that two radicals in 1793, around the time that poem was published, were arrested for calling George III a German hog butcher. And you can see why he might have decided to cross, cross uh, the word German out, because describing something as German forged, if it was seen as an attack on the Hanoverian monarchy, would have been very 
um, dubious. But I think to go back to your question as well about what happens in between, some poems were moved from innocence to experience, like The Schoolboy. And it's not that the innocence poems were entirely without darkness. The innocence poems do have quite a few poems where we see that the possibility of play and expansion that should be part of a portion of a childhood are actually being cramped and confined. Can you give us an example of that? The schoolboy is a good example. That This is in innocence. Yeah, it's in innocence, and it, to use a phrase, series used as this is written, it bounces around for the whole of the rest of his career. It moves backwards and forwards. And that's a poem about... Um, the somebody a, a child who's compared to the freedom of a bird being confined in a in a schoolhouse and what that's like holy holy thursday which is a poem about a child who was effectively trafficked by his father you know where um his mother was young my mother died when i was very young my father sold me while yet my tongue is somebody who's sold into the the um the trade of chimney sweeping which most children died before they reached 14 so the word of innocence is not without its darkness. There are elements of social critique in that part of the collection. Jonathan. I think the biographical answer to the question is that in that period, um, in the early 1790s, he is very much in the circle of Joseph Johnson, this key radical publisher. Um, He spends time in conversation with Tom Paine, the great apologist for the the French Revolution. As John has said, he illustrates a work by Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, He saved Tom Paine's life, didn't he? He tipped Tom Paine off that if he stayed in London for one one or two more hours, he'd be put on trial. Allegedly. The government let Peng go. The government let Peng <laughs> yeah. because they'd rather him be out of the country and so they could put him on trial in absence. Blake did go to him and say, move on, didn't he? Possibly. Sorry, it's a digression. It's unworthy. Right, get on with Blake. So he's deeply in that world of radical politics and a big part of what uh, people like Godwin, you know, the sort of leading intellectual in the, jo- in the Johnson circle, are saying is it's the institutions of society. It's institutions like the law, the church, the institution of marriage. These are the things that cause oppression. Um, you know, if one goes back to the idea of the, you know, the innate um, innocence of the child through the process of institutionalization and socialization. And that's really where uh, Songs of Experience is different. I mean, I, I, could I just read one? My, my favourite of the songs of experience, um, The Garden of Love. It's only a couple of stanzas because I, I think it illustrates well, it no, very I'd well. like you to read that later, but while you're on this business, mm. um, which John r- introduced, one direct example is The Chimney Sweeper, where we have, in Innocence, we have a one boy chimney sweeper and the experience of another, and same mm. title, um, mm. uh, different stories. Can you just read a couple of lines from each of those? Because I think yeah, that would, that's a very, that would, a very good example. Because what happens in the innocence, in the innocence, yeah. in the innocence chimney sweeper, um, you you have the the idea that um, an angel frees uh, the. The, the chimney sweeper. These are, this is child labour we're talking about. Yeah. And of course the chim- chimneys are like coffins and so he imagines an angel liberating a chimney sweeper whereas in the experience uh, chimney sweeper... Let's just sweeper, have a couple of lines to show what he was saying then you can do the other because mm. at the end of the f- chimney sweeper innocence he, I'm reading he says, though the morning was cold Tom was happy and warm so if all do, do their duty they need not fear harm. We're back to the little morality, aren't we? Yeah. And then yeah. in experience... Then in experience, it's a savage indictment of the idea of the parents go off to pray in church and neglect the, the child who is the child labourer up the chimney. Yes. You... Well, it's just one of the interesting things about Blake, I think, is when those closing moral couplets appear, which would seem to be at odds with what Jonathan was saying about the lack of moralising, they're often 
quite complicated, a lot more complicated than they seem when you try and work out their relevance to the poem. Because you, it looks like you're being told, so if all do their duty, it's a doctrine of obedience, everything will be all right. But if you look at the poem, who's done their duty? Not the father, who sold the child. Not the, not the reader even, because it says in the fourth line, so your chimneys I sweep. The reader doesn't get away with it. The only person that does anything like their duty are the two chimney sweeps with each other who comfort each other by offering themselves visions of how their lives may be better. And whether or not it kind of endorses a certain childish idea of heaven, what it really shows is the way that they come together to create an idea of heaven in, their, in line with their capacities in order to provide each other with solace. And you can almost read that last line as a kind of threat to the reader, to the father, who have failed to do the duty that they really owe the child. Sarah, while we, 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 let's stick with the poems for a while. Sarah Haggerty, let's look at the tiger. What's Blake doing there? So this is probably one of the most well-known of the lyrics in this book. It appears in Songs of Experience. And a crucial line, um, it, it's really about the the fear, the dread of this tiger. There are heavy four-beat lines. There's lots of repetition. And then there's the line... Could Did you read a few of them? Of course. So if, if we take the beginning... Um, uh, tiger, tiger, burning bright In the forests of the night What immortal hand or eye Could frame thy fearful symmetry? So we trip slightly over that over that rhyme of symmetry, perhaps. It probably was pronounced symmetry in Blake's time. Um, but apart from that, so we have a not quite symmetry in the line in the rhymes there, but we also have that repetition, bright night eye. Next stands a skies, eyes, a spire, fire. One of the questions of the poem um, that comes near its end is, did he who made the lamb make thee? So there's an immediate reference there back to the lamb, a poem from Innocence, which is spoken by a, a child speaker catechising a tiny woolly lamb who can't answer back. Um, with the lamb and, and experience and Innocence poems in general, we've got mercy, sometimes justice, but now we have with the tiger a kind of dread and fear that can't be harmonised with any benevolent view of the world, um, so there are there so are. So he's presenting these two different. He isn't trying. To, he himself is not trying to harmonise them. He's not trying to harmonise them. He's not no. saying the line the tiger can lay down with the lamb, is he? He says there's this and there's that. Yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And in other poems, like the little girl found, we do actually have tigers who are kind of converted and lie down with lambs, as it were. But the tiger in this particular poem continues to be fierce, at least in the verse. There are lots of efforts in the verse to contain it. There are images of making, often forging like a blacksmith, working like a rope maker, but there's something that exceeds, there's something that exceeds that containment, something sublime. There's something about the drawing of the tiger that slightly gets under people's skin because it looks like a teddy bear, doesn't it? It does. It Is doesn't... that because he can't draw tigers or because he wanted it to be a teddy bear? It doesn't look quite like a teddy bear <laughs> in each version of the poem. Um, does so it ever look like a tiger? Uh, no. It's, it's... So why is that? <laughs> well, it's in some of Blake's other works, he does draw more realistic and more ferocious tigers in his engravings to Dante. Not in this poem. Um, he might have known what a tiger looked like. There are natural historical engravings around that show them ferocious. Um, there is a political reading of this. 
Um, so in the 1790s, when you mentioned tigers, you're at the same time talking about French revolutionaries and you're talking about them in a counter-revolutionary sense. So somebody called Samuel Romilly, who used to support the French Revolution, turns against the, the terror and the bloodshed, writes in 1792, that it would be as ridiculous to imagine a republic of tigers as it would be that the French could govern themselves with a free government. So... Why do we have this cuddly tiger? Perhaps it's saying, well, your French revolutionaries, your hope for a republic. Um, <laughs> it's amazing the lengths we go to defend our heroes. <laughs> Maybe you could just do a tiger. Why, it might be not a terrible thing, is it? I mean, it's a wonderful poem. It doesn't have to be a wonderful tiger as well. Anyway, never mind, that's me being... <laughs> but it isn't much of a tiger, is it, really? John Mee, um, we talked about him being born in Soho, uh, went to a drawing school around the corner, went to an academy and so forth, hating the countryside when he got there. And he wrote London, which is uh, one of his major poems. Can you tell us about that poem? Yeah, I can't forbear telling you, though, that the tiger in the Encyclopedia Britannica at the time is also rather cute. But anyway, <laughs> um, about wrong, that poem... Two, well, two wrong tigers. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't make it right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 1791, he moves from Parliament Street in the north to Lambeth. Uh, that poem may be about... that, um, may be very much situated in that kind of riverside part of South London. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow. A mark in every face I meet, marks of weakness, marks of woe, etc. Uh, he talks about, well, the mind forged manacles is the great line, and it is a poem You never cry, the whole stanza's worth it. No, you do. I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> in every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind forged manacles, I hear. Yeah. It's a tremendous poem about the way, I'm just what Jonathan was saying, this sense of institutional impression. Um, oppression being internalised. It seems a great kind of breakthrough. It should be said that this is a period when people like Godwin, as Jonathan mentioned, are talking about the way that so invasive does governmental control seem to become, that that internalising, the paranoia is almost the order of the day. A lot of writers are afraid that what they will publish will get them in trouble, even though in some ways they've got no cause. The government doesn't really want to have show trials of what might seem ineffectual poets who claim to have seen angels. But there comes a pervasive sense of this. So in November... 1792, an organisation called the, the Association for Protection of Liberty and Property uh, uh, against Republicans and Levellers has formed. And people who work in the book trade, people who work in the opinion trade, as it were, are particularly uh, under their gaze. So I think that's... I mean, we've already talked about the way Blake may um, change a line in the poem, but more generally, this sense of oppression moving inward, so people are becoming paranoid about their freedom of expression. The other thing, we talked about dissonance between illustrations or the designs and the poem. In the design for that poem, there's a child, and it may be that one of the things that poem suggests is that this the old aged figure who's imagined, I think, saying the poem, has internalised this urban alienation. But for Blake... Babylon could always become Jerusalem, and the child seems to be pointing him to another way to see the city. So innocence has never entirely escaped. Can I get back to Jonathan Bate, whom I uh, rudely prevented reading a poem earlier on, because it wasn't, wasn't where we were in the programme, but now's your chance. Um, I'd like to tackle this question. Very often the poems appear very simple indeed, and people like your three selves tell us, yes, they are, but also, no, they aren't. Can we do this with one of his marvellous poems, I think, the great poems, The Sick Rose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this is a remarkable And if poem. you can tell re um, listeners what so it says. So it's a very simple poem, uh, just two stanzas. It goes like this. O rose, thou art sick, 
The invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Now, at one level, that's a, that's a poem about a, a rose. A rose flowers for only a short time, but a canker in a rose destroys it. But if one starts looking closely at the language, the invisible worm in the night, finding out the bed, the sense of crimson joy, the dark secret love, one sees this is also a poem about, about sex and sexuality. There's no doubt that a, a, a key aspect of Blake's radicalism as a, as a religious thinker is that he, he believes, as he says uh, somewhere, that energy is eternal delight. He believes that sexual passion comes from God and is a good thing, and that one of the worst things about the established church is uh, its, its attitude to, 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 to sex. Um, uh, in later years, um, long after his death, Blake was taken up as a kind of apostle of free love. But is that plausible? Well, it it is, but I think this poem reminds us that uh, the the idea of sexual delight is something that can be destructive. Um, so I, I think that that sometimes Blake is, is 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 misread as a kind of 1960s hippie before mm. his time, uh, because actually the, the 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 imagery here of sort of the the, the loss of virginity and the, the 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 destruction of the rose and the sense of darkness, the dark secret love, um, suggests that uh, sex sexual desire can can rebound upon one in a very in a very destructive way. Um, but it, it, the extraordinary thing about, about the poem is, you know, the simplicity of the image, the, the, the rhythm, the rhyme, the language, and yet it repays endless deep attention. Talking uh, in one of your, I think it's in your notes, uh, Jonathan, you say that it is alleged that he and his wife Catherine used to uh, uh, be naked in their gardens singing, singing his poems. They are called songs. Sarah Haggerty, can you sing one of them? <laughs> 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 well, I could, but I don't know whether people would appreciate it. Um, oh, that's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> we've, we've talked a lot about um, words and images so far, um, and we tend to think of this uh, Blake's art as composite art, of, as word and image combined. But we need to think not just about the look of the books, but how they sound. And they are, after all, called songs rather than poems. And as songs, one of the things they're doing is revitalising that immediate connection you have between a speaking poet and a listening audience. And that lack of, of intermediary as you're communicating your verse seems very important to Blake. Um, in terms of the kinds of songs that were influencing him, um, nursery rhymes really seem to have been a particular, um, a, a particular Im influence. And generally in Blake, you've got four beat lines in these songs um, and a lot of repetition and refrain, which will help to remember the poems. Um, Blake himself is reported to have sung these. So in the 1780s, in the Matthews Salon that John was describing earlier, yes, Blake sang poems like The Tiger. And then later in life, you have John Linnell, one of his young artist disciples, reciting. And then another person, Henry Crabb Robinson, picking this up. Blake said to have composed tunes to these songs, but they haven't survived. Who else has composed tunes to these songs which might have survived, apart from yourself, if you're too shy? Well, the, the, 
the, fir- the first one, the first one extant is in 1876. But then there are a lot of the 20th century settings that are better known by Vaughan Williams, by Taverner, by Britain. Then there are folk settings, heavy metal, um, also a, a great variety of different musics. There's a very interesting recent collection by an American folk singer who, called Martha Red, Red, Redbone, I think it is, who's uh, claiming that Appalachian sort of blues tunes are, are from English folk song, maybe what they sound like so that it's appealed to lots of contemporary musicians to try and set them to song or to make their own versions of them but, but one thing I, I would just like to add quickly um is that there isn't it isn't allied to a skepticism about writing and books in blake because you might think of orality as being more flexible and and what's being written as being set in stone but you don't have that same kind of idea of fixity in the introduction to innocence you have songs written that every child may joy to hear so we have books that are being read aloud and throughout um, this is writing that plays to the ear and to the eye and blake can reconcile all those different media john john may um are there some ideas uh, that that are more difficult, he finds more difficult in expressing? I'm looking at a poison tree. Uh, can you talk about that? And mm-hmm. what, that's, It's quite a difficult idea, is expressing there. It is. I think, it's, I basically, think, it's basically psychology, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think... And you want to do the first stanza? I'm not I, sure. I, I, have, you, I, I brought a book. I'm sorry to be at this yeah, ridiculous yeah, advantage, yeah, but I thought it might be yeah. useful. Well, the first stanza says, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath... My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. And then the rest of the poem is saying what happens when he lets his wrath grow, which is murder. Yeah, a a simple count on that, which does look like um, preempting modern psychology, although it's an old idea, is that it's about the return of the repressed. You keep your emotions back and what happens, and and your sexual desire back, and what happens is it returns in, in, in a violent and awful form. But I think Jonathan got to the heart of it earlier when he said that Blake he's, he thinks there should be more room for sexual expression than there has been in his society but he has got no doubt that that is a complicated thing that has pain involved. His view of innocence and the the growing intersexuality that is a difficult course, difficult enough we might say without institutions then making people feel guilt about it. So he's very interested in the way that individual psychology is all the time bound up in desire and a desire that wants to possess the object of its desire and the problems about being open that and allowing your object, the object of your desire to have its own freedom. And at the same time, interested in the way that that is worsened by the way institutions are make, making feel, people feel guilty to start with about having those feelings. But, I mean, it's very, and the clarity is wonderful. Again, mm. Jonathan, you come in basically saying institutions repress you uh, these Church of England people, these schools uh, m- nurturing, festering your wrath repress you and it ends in violence Exactly, that's, that's, that's exactly it um, and that, that in a way is, is, is why you know, he has been taken up by free thinkers and radical thinkers um, uh, o- over the years I mean, it's, uh, uh, we, again we need to remember, remember how little known his poetry was, how little influence he had in his own time Few people in the literary world read him. Wordsworth said, or people say Blake is mad, but I'm more interested in that man's madness than the supposed sanity of Byron or Shelley. Uh, but generally, uh, this is kind of a kind of underground writing until 
um, later in the Victorian period, where the Pre-Raphaelites, um, the, the Rossetti is taking up, the, the Victorian free thinker and sort of apostle of sexual liberation, A.C. Swinburne, becomes a huge fan of Blake. Um, and then uh, the poet W.B. Yeats edits that's his work. Movie, it, really? that, that, that's right. So, uh, the collected edition, didn't you? Yeah, that? exactly. And so um, he, he has been regarded as a, a sort of extraordinary forerunner of free thinking and, uh, um, and, and sexual liberation. John. And around that time, that turn happened to Whitman in America. Blake's always been very big in America. And there's a line from Whitman to Ginsburg. Ginsburg you know, Ginsburg, yeah. and how, that's all Blake there. And that American tradition of Blake has been a very powerful one. But it does go back to Whit- Whitman at that late 19th century moment. Sarah, can I give you another slightly hard question later on, because you haven't much time left. How do you do, do the, the, the words and the, and the paintings, the illustrations, we can't really call them, how do they interreact? Yeah, we, we can't call them illustrations precisely no. because they're not subordinate. They, they, they tell a different story. They can clash with the text in the way that we've talked about with the tiger. Um, they can produce alternative readings. There's a poem called The Little Black Boy that really talks about a colourblind future in which the white child will somehow still have to protect the black child. Blake shows us in his colouring that you can never get rid of colour. So he can critique the poems in the verses. Um, even though these two media are inextricable, um, well, one of the ironies of Blake's mode of production is that he can't produce enough books to reach a wide enough audience. And another irony was that well on into the 20th century, we tended to have just the texts produced typographically. So we don't look at the designs, we don't look at the, the pages teeming with life, and we don't look at his handwriting, and we don't think of the uniqueness of copies of this book anymore. We just see them as they're reproduced. So we know, all the four of us, because we're readers, we know what it means to read. What is it added by, by these paintings, uh, the paintings of the words as well? Jonathan, do you have a punt at that? Jonathan first. Well, if we go back to that idea of two ways of seeing, a, a, a rational way of seeing and a sort of glorious colour-filled way, way of seeing, the, the, the colour seems to me crucial. It's, um, you know, ink is... Is, a, is black and white. Ink on paper is black and white, a black and white way of looking at the world. What Blake offers is a visionary, coloured way of looking at the world. John. And then the other thing to say is that a key Blake catchphrase is the idea of rousing the faculties to act. And in a way, it's the dissonance between them. It makes you read actively. You can't read these texts passively. You've got to make sense of the relationship. Sometimes it's like an illustration. Often it's a much more complicated relationship. Thank you very much, John May, uh, Sarah Haggerty, Jonathan Bate. Next week we'll be talking about the history of the idea of sovereignty from the sovereignty from the ancient Greeks onwards. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Now then, tell... Tell it all, John. Grouse away, they're listening. Millions of people are listening to this postscript and they want to know why you're grouching away. <laughs> well, my only grouse, you stopped me from reading The Garden of Love, which I is know, my favourite poem. So I'm going to read it now. No, you read it now. <laughs> I just thought The Chimney Sweeper was such a good example. It's, it's a good example of the innocence versus yeah, experience. The structure took over. We, I, was rep- I repressed you. You did, you did. Well, here's no, the no, return. No, you're going to murder somebody now. It's going to be your fault. You're going to murder me. So here's the return of the repressed, because it's the best example of this idea of the the kind of innocence idea of a garden uh, uh, being 
being hemmed in and destroyed by the experience idea of institutionalized religion and particularly its its oppression of desire um, of, of of the body of, of passion, I went to the garden of love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. I mean, I think that just sums up all our themes. Yes, it does. It's it's good that it comes now. <laughs> the select audience. Yeah, the, the, it's <laughs> worth saying about that poem that the green. I mean, we were talking about green spaces. It's pro- very likely that the. I mean, it's a very it's a very pastoral collection with a pastoral meaning. It's kind of literary. It's not kind of words worthy of nature out there. Oh, we never got around to that, Dan, yeah. did we? And the, the second point, it's almost certainly these greens are not really village greens. Mm. They're greens in London, especially mm. parts of London that are being urbanised, and it's mm. very likely, there's a kind of factoid that people are... <laughs> they're, they're, in Lambeth there was a green right. in April 1793 that was, that was a, chap, a subscription chapel was built, which precisely would not only be repressive in many ways, but it was also exclusive. You had to pay to get a pew. And it was built over what had been a green, more or less opposite Blake's house. So it's a kind of... the, the, the Blake's London is a place where there are green spaces. And even as it is expanding rapidly out, and it's a period of great expansion, it's leaving these little spaces, which have been colonised, if you like, by things like the subscription chapel. Uh, so it's a, I think there may be a particularly biographical background to that, that poem. What questions did you did I not ask you? Sarah? Oh, uh, I, well, I can think of a few, a few but more immediately, um, I was thinking: was it Samuel Palmer who said something about walking with Blake through the countryside was to perceive the the soul of beauty and the forms of matter? And I was thinking back to some of those questions about um, Blake's religion and how you really do get a hostility towards any deferring of change or deferral of hope until an afterlife. Mm. There's always possibility for change now, and that seems to be important. And what also seems to me to be important with Blake, I was thinking about the images again, um, is that even if we're looking with imaginative vision in the way that Jonathan described so well earlier, um, all matter can be kind of creatively organised. So we're not thinking about some abstract, Mm. floaty spirit realm. We're thinking about very precisely organised forms that Blake has drawn in this way on a page and a book made in this Mm. way too. Um, And the other thing I was thinking was how attracted we all seem to be to the the social protest of experience and that critique of false consciousness in particular. And I always go back to innocence whenever I've finished experience because there is something transcendent and I think about the communal song of the the kind of the the thunderous harmonizings of, of the children's thanksgiving in Holy Thursday but there's also something about there's something hopeful in innocence that's lost I think in experience and but is that deliberate uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole point about contraries, which is something that Blake will write about in between in 1719, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, is that both need to coexist. Both are necessary to human existence. And you do get that idea with innocence and experience. And 
crucially in Innocence. Um, I mean, we ran past Infant Joy earlier, John, that poem from Innocence, but there's something about the hope that's imminent in human relationships. There's a, there's a, there's a mother speaking to her two-day-old child in that poem. And there's a kind of an open, free conversation between them. And, and there's a kind of a, almost a disinterested creativity. Well, I think um, there is that thing about openness to the other. Although I do yeah. think that things aren't entirely closed off in experience. I mean, one of the things that follows from what you were saying about matter is that he never, you know, that Babylon can always become Jerusalem. The two things are always open to one being transmuted into another. There's always this sense, the possibility of a redemption. So it's just like, the innocence poem where you start to see the potential darkening and you're country-wise there are experience poems where there still is a moment of hope or some kind of possibility it's not completely it's not shut down uh, i think i mean on the subject of babylon and jerusalem I mean, one of the things that struck me just um preparing for uh, the, the program just going back looking through the complete works is um it's surprising how few um poems in this style of songs of lyrics he wrote after experience i mean there are some in the in the notebooks that weren't published but we do know when he was down in sussex um that a visitor heard him singing what were described as devotional songs and one would guess that one of those um would be the the song or him and did those feet in ancient times which of course was not part of his epic called jerusalem it was part of his epic called milton Mm. but it's one of the very few later poems that that is really in the style of the songs of instant experience i I think a lot of people would have imagined it was in the collection i think there is a song i mean so he engraves a select collection of English songs, Joseph Ritson's yeah. kind of collection of folk ballads for John. So there, I think there is a 1780s night when people are very interested in song, they're interested in popular culture. It gets into lyrical ballads but in no, a way. I was going to say lyrical yeah. ballads. And, yeah, and that, that interest, Ritson, who I think is very important actually for Wordsworth as well as Bishop Percy. And there's an argument about between Bishop Percy and Ritson about whether this is a trickle-down culture or a culture up from the people. And there's a lot of argument about what's the appropriate form of song come before the people, what's the difference between folk song and songs you hear on the street, which might be songs from very recent plays that suddenly become popular. So I think there is a a 1780s, early 1790s moment where song is at the forefront of people's thinking about literature. It's bound up with an attempt to find an English Burns, isn't it? Burns was so influential. um, Oh, damn, I wish you mentioned Burns as well. Yeah, yeah. I was mentioning words. There's something I always think though about um, ballads hiding in um, some of those longer lines. So if you think about the ballad stanza, you have um, it's four line stanza, four beats, three beats, four, three, Um, four and three add up to seven, and there are often seven beats. 14 syllables even in the longer lines of Blake's later mythic writings in fact isn't Holy Thursday of Innocence also in these 14 yeah. so so even in these longer lines you've still got that popular measure of well, the ballad argue, but, but I think these are songs rather than ballads here's the producer with that. news from the yeah. front I'm sorry to interrupt you but we've got to give up the studio <laughs> who'd like to your coffee there are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website where you'll also find a reading list for this episode Introducing Pocket Cast, the powerful podcasting platform recognized by Wired Magazine as the podcast app every iPhone user needs and by the New York Times as the favorite among podcast experts. Pocket Cast is beautifully designed, easy to use, and helps you quickly discover and enjoy your favorite podcasts with over 700,000 shows to choose from. Download the app, now free, at pocketcast.com. 